part two of our series called the Parade of Fools, which is our sermon series on Luke chapter 15. And last week we had we asked you guys to take that little card home to have some discussion questions. This week we have another set of discussion questions for you that we've placed right here on this side. But today we're going to do something that's different and special. We're just trying stuff. We're just trying things to help our church and those of you who are members of it to really walk that we would across across the generation and across the ministries walk together in the Lord. And today um, what we'd like to do is I'm going to preach my message and then after it's over, Joe's going to lead you in a little time of um, just thinking. And during this time, in the, as we begin the responsive time, Take your crayon, or if you want to draw the pen, or however you want to do it, um, draw what comes to you. Okay, as you hear, you've, as you respond to the Lord and what this word says to you. I, I have no idea what you're going to draw. You may draw some, I don't know. You may draw a smiley face or whatever. Okay, draw what you believe the Lord, what this message is saying to you on this. Uh, and then question number one, as you go home or as you spend time talking across the generations, is what does your drawing mean? <laughs> what did the Lord speak to you and uh, give you, um, as you as you listen to this message? So as after, the, um, after I preach and after I close out um, the, ser- um, the sermon with prayer, Joe's going to give you some time to draw, and then, and then we'll go into the rest of our, our you know, responsive time, our usual um, praise and uh, offering. Okay? So with that said, let's uh, go to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2 in, in chapter 15, and then let's go to chapter uh, verse 11. And let me ask you specifically to pay particular attention to the latter portion, verses 25 to 32. Okay, So it's, uh, it's a bit of a lengthy passage, and, but it's, it really is worth reading so that you just know this so well. This very profound story that Jesus tells. So let me start with verse 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verse 11. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. There's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray for today's message. Lord, um, you, know, you, you, you faced people that were just very hard and far from you. And in varying different ways, they, they did not have a heart that was soft to receive and see you as Messiah and see you as Savior and respond to you as broken and as deeply needing you and letting you love them, Lord. And, you know, these are the people we call the Pharisees and scribes. And today there are many such people and there are many such people in our churches. There are many such people in our church, right here in our congregation. And I pray, Lord, Lord, send your spirit and stir and soften hardened and tired and broken and beaten down and cynical hearts, Lord. I pray that you would do that in our midst today and help us see and come to you, come to you not as a son who thinks that we, we deserve, that we deserve somehow that you ought to be good to us, but, but as, a, as, as broken people, that you have healed and that you would really make us not so much performers and doers and rule keepers, but you would make us your really soft-hearted, celebrating, coming into your party, sons and daughters of the true and living Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm go- as I typically do, I'm going to talk about this in three parts. First, I'm going to talk about the, the issue of manageable religion. Manageable religion. That's going to be part one. Part two, I'm going to talk about the deal with God. Those who like to, who dip, typically tend to engage in manageable religion have an unspoken deal with God, and I'm going to talk about that deal. And then three, I'm going to talk about Jesus as our true righteousness and path to sonship. Jesus as a true, as our true righteousness and path to sonship. Now, to start off this message, uh, talking about manager religion, let me get into it by this. I've entitled this message, God as the Principle. God as the Principle. And you know, in this, in this, this whole chapter, is really a critique. It's a critique of people who, in one way or another, have come into and have heard and have interacted in one way or another with the proclamation of the gospel, the truth of who is God, and the truth of God as He has sent as He has sent His Son Jesus, so that God would be known. And you know, there in this chapter fifteen, what it is is. There's this two camps. And there's two camps of people. This one is a really, it's the, well, let's call them the sinners and the tax collectors. And in that time, those were the people that were morally chaotic and didn't have their life together. At least in the way that those under God would see it. But then there's a whole nother set of people that were generally called Pharisees. You know? And today I want to, I want to press you. In varying different kinds of ways, the Pharisees, people who are Pharisees, they're the hardest to reach. They're the most thick-headed, the most hard-hearted, the most blind. And they're blind precisely because they don't understand why they need God to be a Savior like Jesus. And that is not a problem 
that is only exists outside of the church, that exists especially inside of the church, especially in the people that consider themselves religiously observant, including Christianity. But, you know, I know that if you've been in our church for a while, that you've heard me say this in varying different kinds of ways, and I hope it has sown a kind of spiritual health and softness in your heart so for you to be willing to follow Jesus and really be a son or a daughter of the Father. But I'm, I'm trying different kinds of ways because... Just because I say it one way doesn't mean that, you know, you'll get it. <laughs> and, and let me say this just to start off this message. You may have heard this many times before, but if you have been in the church for even a, a, a short amount of time, let's say a year, okay? If you've been a regular church attendant for a year, let me tell you what the likelihood of you being a Pharisee or having Pharisaical tendencies are. The likelihood is, get this, 100%. Okay? Right? So who am I talking to? I'm talking to you. If you hear this message about the foolishness, we we're, were talking about a parade of fools. And last week we talked about the fool who is the younger son. And we talked about how he does it by using God. And today we're talking about the fool who is the older son, which is the pharisaical foolishness. And if you don't think that's you, let me ask you seriously to reconsider. Right? And that's why I, start, I want to start off just by this, this illustration here. You know, when you were a kid, you went to school. There was your teacher, okay? And your teacher was the person that would be the one to directly tell you what's right and what's wrong and how to be good, right? Because notice your teacher doesn't just tell you the, the, the right answers and gives you a bunch of content and then you get little tests or quizzes or so forth. There's all kinds of different ways your teacher asks you to do kinds of things. It asks you to do drawing assignments, okay? And, you know, you do them and when your teacher praises you, you're, you're being good. Today we're talking to all the people who are the good kids in school, right? But when you were in school, there was the person who was kind of directly in front of you was your teacher. And the way I look at church in some ways is it's kind of not unlike that. The, except you don't have a teacher, you have a pastor. Or maybe elders. Or maybe community group leaders. The, the leaders of your church, they might be sort of like your teachers. They're urging you to do your quiet times. I'm urging you to do your quiet time. I'm urging you to go before the Lord in softness before Him. Okay? I'm urging you to come out to church, come out to community group, uh, engage in mission. I'm asking you to give up a whole week of your life. I'm asking you to give up money and time and opportunity costs for your summer to go be uncomfortable and spend time with a very broken people. I mean, I, you know, your teacher, so to speak, asks you to do all kinds of things. But then there's someone else looming over the whole campus, right? And that's the principal. And the principal is the big guy. <laughs> and everybody doesn't want to get sent and be before the principal. But the principal is there. The principal has authority. The principal has power. The principal is scary. And you don't want to end up down there. But he's the one that oversees the whole thing. Right? And for some of you, many of you, uh, in one way that I, I tend to look at the Pharisaical spirit is you don't see God as your father. Mm-hmm. Last night, um, last night I took my well, I took my older daughter out on a daddy date. It's been a while. Uh, this year, as a number of you guys know, and if you've been in our church, you, know, you guys know that I, I like to try to do this. I, I'm not really good at this. I'm not really... Because, you know, I'm, I'm like a C-plus dad, but, so I'm not really good at this. But I try to, in one way or another, to impart my love to my children. And as I spend time with them, that they will also get the love of the Lord that I believe in. And, you know, when my daughters ask me for the quiet time, in fact, my younger one, since it wasn't her turn last night, I mean, 
she, it's got to be tonight. <laughs> My youngest one, she, tonight's got to be the, her daddy daytime because she just can't wait. And so, and, and I told her, oh man, I can't do it tonight and I, and I can't do it Monday. And, and she, that's just, she has to wait till Tuesday. I think, I think we can pull it off on Tuesday. And you know, that is an eternity wait for my very impatient Elizabeth, right? And that my daughters, you know, and, and, and it's just, you know, they love the daddy dates. You know, Hudson li- li- loves it too. They love the daddy date because they got to be, they want to spend time where dad is just daddy and just loves me. We go do something together and it's just special for me. We're not trying to get some work done. They're not, it's not school. It's not duty. It's just pure attention and love. And that's what it's for, right? And they want that, right? And most Christians do not seek daddy dates, <laughs> If you turn to your daddy, and I'm not saying, I'm a C-plus dad, but my children clearly understand, like, that time is for them to be utterly free to be a child, to be, the, to, to be daddy's kid, right? And to receive dad's love, and to totally get his attention, and to just be themselves, right? Um... Just, just to share personally. So, well, what do we do? Uh, Laura and I, Laura likes to eat, and Laura likes different kinds of food, and, but Laura is indecisive. So I said, what do you want to do? So she knew we were going to go out to dinner. So in, in her case, it's, it's kind of like a, it really is kind of like a date. And, and so, I mean, for Elizabeth, it, it, it might be, I don't know, we'll, we'll go, you know, eat ice cream and we'll draw or something. <laughs> okay, but, but for, for Laura, it's more like like a date. So I gave her all the choices, and so she's and so even though she's indecisive, so I actually helped her make the decision. I said, "It's she, what are you gonna what are we gonna eat?" She was like, I, "What she goes, what are we gonna eat?" I go, well, "It's your daddy date. What do you want?" And she goes, "I don't know." That's how she goes. Mm-hmm. So I said, "Well, let's narrow it down." And then she goes, "I don't think I want American food." I go, "What's American food? Hamburger." Hot dogs, pizza. She's like, no, no, no pizza. Okay. Italian food? No, no, no. That's like, okay. I guess she considered Italian food, American food, okay? And so that's how she, she thinks of it. So then I said, okay, that leaves us with all the Asian stuff. There's, there's Korean and there's Chinese and there's Thai and Vietnamese. I, I, I didn't put Mexican out there because I don't know if the kids, you know, I should try Mexican next time, all right? And so I, and then she eliminated all those. She eliminated all those, right? She said, okay, uh, well, Korean, we, we eat all the time, okay? And then, so we, we eliminated them one by one. She didn't want Thai. She didn't want Vietnamese. It came down to Chinese or Japanese. Well, I said, well, then, you know, let, let's go Japanese because, you know, we did Chinese recently. She said, okay, so, okay, so we went Japanese. You know, Hudson or, and Elizabeth, they, there's no way they're going to touch raw fish, <laughs> Okay? They are not going to have sushi, but but my but Laura, this one might might try it. I said, "You want to try sushi?" She goes, "Okay." I go, "You know what sushi is, right?" She goes, "It's sort of like kimbap, isn't it?" I go, "Not really." <laughs> I go, "You know the, the the seaweeds, Korean stuff. No, it's really not like that. It's it's raw. <laughs> you know that, right?" She goes, "Yeah, I know." So we went. And so I took her to this, you know, the sushi place near her house. She's not that talkative. She can be. She can be. She wasn't last night. I wasn't in a talkative mood. I know that's hard for you to believe, all right? And so there was actually good bouts of quiet. There was good bouts of quiet while we ate food, and I would have her. You eat this. Try this. Try the. Try it with the wasabi. Try it without the wasabi. After dinner was over, we went for a walk. We walked around, I held her hand, and then she loved the dessert time. That's going to dad. The whole thing is, is nothing special. Right? We went out for dessert. We had cake and ice cream. Okay? Place, a little place called uh, Bittersweet, which I recommend to you. Bitter plus sweet in Cupertino. We went there. 
And then we opened up my iPad and we watched an episode of a TV show she likes at Bittersweet because I have streaming technology on my iPad. Okay, so that's what we did. That's time with Dad. In one way or another, everything that we do here at this church, you know what I'm telling you to do? When I ask you to go do your quiet time, I'm telling you to go be with Dad. Okay? When I'm saying, let's go out to Bishop or let's go do mission, let's go, let's go do Dad's business. Let's go do the stuff that's on Dad's heart. That's what I'm asking you to do. Right? When I ask you to get into the Scriptures, let's go see what Dad has to say. That's what I'm saying. But for many of you, God is not dad. God is a principal. I'm the pastor. He's the teacher up here telling me what to do. I'll try to be a good kid. But really, God is like the big guy behind the pasture. He's like the principal. And I don't want to be sent to the principal. And so, what do so many Christians do? What they do is they do Roman numeral number one, manageable religion. They come and do the things that you're supposed to do to be a good kid, to be a good student. And, and be, they, because they do all things that are good, and thus you know, they will never have to get sent before, being, before the principal, and they will never have to deal with the sternness of the principal. The whole point of being good is to keep the principle off your back, to be in good standing with Him, and, and thus be good before Him. And when we have this religion that we call Christianity, and you, but you function in this kind of way, you're dealing with Christianity as if it's like every other religion in the world, but it's not. Because the real Christianity cannot be managed. <laughs> It cannot be done, so to speak. Every other religion and every other worldview, including the secular ones, by the way, including the secular religion, secular humanistic ways that we think, all the people out there who just say, I'm a nothing, they're agnostics, they're, they're, they're functioning in secular religion because they all think if I do X, Y, Z good things, then I'm a good person. That's secular religion. But... If you treat Christianity this way, in very real way, you have no idea what Christianity is about. It's really strange. You're looking at just all the trappings of Christianity, but not what it's really about. Because Christianity itself, that's why it has, that's why when Jesus says things to you, he says things that are really, in one sense, completely ridiculous. Someone comes up to you. He's your enemy. You should love him. If he punches you, punches you on the left cheek, you know what? You should turn to him the other one. Boom. Why don't you punch me here too? What are you, nuts? Hmm? If, if someone asks of you your coat, don't just give him your coat. Give him your cloak too. Give him more than that. Don't just give a little bit of your money. Give everything. See? Why does Jesus talk like this? Because this is not manageable. You can't just do this and then just go, it's as if the teacher were to say, hey kids, everybody show up, memorize the whole book. We're going to have a test tomorrow. Everybody better get a perfect score. If you don't, you're going to go to hell. That's like what Christianity is saying. Because it's supposed to drive you to understand there's no such thing as manageable religion. Everybody else is doing manageable religion, but there's no way you can jam Christianity into a manageable religion. And all the people who show up thinking they can do this, there, there are Muslims who do it this way, there are Buddhists who do it this way, and then of course there's the secular good person. I, I recycle, and I give money to the poor every now and then. I'm a very moral person. And thus... That's a form of secular manageable religion. That's a form of secular Phariseeism. But if the person comes into the church, and there's lots of people in the church that are trying to operate according this way, and then treat it as a series of things that if I do this, then I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> you know, 
And it's strange. And the reason I have to I press you at this is because nobody's going to say this out loud. You know, we're all supposed to say we're sinners and that we're falling short. But I'm trying to cut, get you into your heart of how you actually feel inside of you. The thing you know, you never would say it out loud. It's so, it's so strange you wouldn't even say it to yourself. But as long as you're operating in this way, and you don't go, and that's, re- the really, that's really the real clue to the elder son's foolishness, you don't seek daddy time. Right? You don't come to be with dad. You just come to be good enough to avoid the principle. See? It's a strange thing. There's some people who say, I can avoid God by being good. It's an interesting way of putting it. And there's two, uh, two general approaches, let me just talk about, of, toward manageable religion and keeping God at bay as the principle. One, let me call it the minimal approach. And two, let me call the maximal approach. Let's talk about the maximal one first. And he's, if, there is a set of people who usually, they've, been, they've, they've maybe lived far away from God and they've wrecked their life. Then they hear about Jesus saved them by grace, forgiving them of their sins. And they're like, you know what, I've got to get everything. I'm going to really follow God. And then usually it's interesting People go from the elder son to the I mean, younger son to the older son. They get really excited about Jesus. At first, they run and they're filled with grace in their heart. But then they want to do all the ABC things. And so then, after a while, and then some of them get really good at it. But a lot of them, they try the maximal approach. They try doing all the prayers, doing all the Bible studies, helping out the poor, coming to all the church activities. They want to do all these things. And then some of them, if they're really good, while they're doing all these things, they're doing all the maximal things. They're saying, now I'm being a good Christian. Now I'm being a good Christian. What tends to happen is one of two things uh, in this maximal approach. If you're doing all of it, you come to every church activity, you're reading all your Bible, doing all the prayers, and, and giving lots of money, and, and all your time, and your energy, and doing every mission trip, everything, Okay? One of two things will happen. Well, I should say one of three things will happen. Right? But two common things happen. Two common pharisaical things happen. One is, is you like it. And you're good at it. And you find out you're very good at maximal Christian religion. And everybody else who's not good at it, you start thinking you're better than them at it. Some people, and then some of them be, decide to become professionals and then they become pastors. <laughs> right? They become professional Pharisees, like me. Like that's that was one of the reasons why I probably became a pastor. But that's the way God probably called me to be a pastor, not out of a deep sense of humility, but out of pride. It's one way to go, maximalism. Right? A second way go. People try it for a while, and then they get tired, or even burned out, and then they drop off. And then they typically go to manageable religion number one, the minimalism, right? Usually, so many Christians are flopping back and forth between maximal Phariseeism and minimal Phariseeism. I see this in the church all the time. People flop back and forth between one or the other. But in both ways, there are ways to keep the principle at bay and not go to dad. They're different. The maximalism is do all of it and feel like you're being a good Christian because you're doing all of it, right? The minimalism is to take some small portion thereof. It's like this. Maximalism is eat all the vegetables, okay? Minimalism is eat one cucumber. Now you're good. That's, that's the way Hudson does it in our house. Okay? Grace makes him eat one cucumber. I assure you, he never chews. goes, let me just eat a second one. Let's just eat a second one. Because, you know, that's, that's, that's a, my mo- because my mom loves me and, you know, it's probably good. Just one cucumber. That's it. Boom. He eats one. And he eats it very reluctantly. <laughs> it's a very reluctantly. 
And then as soon as it's over, it's like, oh, I'm free now. Now, now let's eat the part I want. Okay? And many of you are like that in your manageable religion. That's the minimalism. You peek, you, you do the one part that you can do. For many, and probably most Christians, it's probably come to church once a week. It's about the few times they pray. And they, and they usually come somewhere in the middle of service, so they don't even get, the, you know, they don't come for the whole service, just come for part of the service, right? And, um, and that's, and then next time I'll do that. So a lot of people, if they do that regularly, I mean, gosh, they're good. And then on top of that, of course, you know, they, they, they don't, they don't steal, they don't lie, they don't cheat on their wives. Okay? They're not bad people. And, but as long as you think that this, because you're doing either maximal management religion or minimal management religion, and now I'm, I'm good before God. I'm just good. I'm good. Okay? Um, the pastor told me I'm okay. Or I, I feel like I'm okay. I feel like I'm okay. The pastor actually didn't say that, but I feel like I'm okay. Let me tell you something. This is the elder brother foolishness. My manageable religion. Let me go to part two. The deal with God. The deal with God. What do I mean by the deal with God? Um, I've tried so many different ways to try to fling this at you. There's, there's something deep inside the human mind. And it just keeps spilling out. And, and the Bible has varying different ways of talking about this. But really what it is we call legalism. There's this idea that there's a contract. Everybody feels that those who are good deserve blessing and reward. Those who are bad deserve punishment. What human being doesn't believe that? Every single human being believes that. We, we, if you believe in God, you know God is the ultimate keeper of who is good and who is bad. That's why He's the principle. Right? The principle is the one who is the final keeper of the rules and of the standards and of the institution we call the school, the campus. That's why God is the cosmic principle. He's the ultimate principle of the whole universe. Right? There's a deal with the principle. And deal with something like this. If I'm good, if I'm really good, maximal Pharisees say, or if I'm good enough, minimal Pharisees say. Most of you will say if I'm good enough. Certainly, if this is the bar, I'm above it. If you have been doing that with your life, here's the deal. The deal is God will be good to me. But what does God will be good to me mean? He'll give me something that I want in my life. Listen, let's go to, let's go, let me go to the passage. Luke 15. The older son was out in the field. He came near and drew to the house. He heard music and dancing. That's his father's heart. That's the daddy date. That's dad being dad. Notice he doesn't come in. Doesn't come in. He's out doing the work. <laughs> I'm doing the work. But here is where the deal comes in. Go, drop down to verse 29. He hears this thing. Your father killed the fattened calf. He's angry and refused to come in. But here's what he says to his dad. Look, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command. Or at least I mostly didn't disobey your command. I mostly was good. And certainly I was good enough, wasn't I? And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Where's my party? Where's the thing that's fun for me? Where's the thing that's mine? Where's my blessing? You know, last week I said that the, the foolishness of the younger son was using God. Actually, the older son uses God too, uses the father too. 
It's just that his pathway to use the Father is through a form of obedience. I never disobeyed your commands, right? And yet you never gave me a goat. You know what he's saying? He's saying the deal. He's demanding the deal. In his heart, he's saying, he's saying, you're supposed to give me the goat. Because I always did what you, what you said to do. That's what he's saying. I was good. You're supposed to be good to me. You're supposed to give me something I want. That's the deal. Something that I wanted in my life. And you know, the way it tends to play out is something like this. What I've noticed is, the people who feel like their life is going well, and they are pharisaical, you know what they think? God's good to me. Then they don't say this next part, but this is what they feel, because I'm being a good Christian. Because I've been good. That's why God's good to me. That's one way. There's a whole set of people out there, and it's, it comes out in all kinds of in- interesting, odd ways. You want to test a person to find out if underneath they're a son or if they're a Pharisee. You want to test it? Ask them and say, press them and say, maybe God wants you to do this, something that will break them out of that comfort zone of the thing that they consider the normal happy life. So break them out of that comfort zone, and if they just go, uh... Nah. Right? If they never consider that they have to go out, I'm good here. I'm always good here. I don't have to go there. They always just say, I give this amount of money, I don't have to give any more. I give this amount of time, I don't have to give any more. But all along the while, all these other good things are happening to me. Therefore, it's because, well, it's because I'm good. Right? That's the deal. Those are usually the most blind people. They attribute the good things that are happening in their life to the good way they're being a good good Christian. And then God is pleased with them. It's true. Let me tell you something. Legalism dies very hard. And let me tell you something else. It takes supernatural grace to kill legalism in your head and in your heart. We all want to believe, I'm getting good things because I'm a good person. We all want to believe that. Or I'm a good Christian. But there's a second version of the way the deal plays out. A person comes to church. They don't live a morally chaotic life. They may even read their Bible sometimes. They may pray. They give time to the church. They volunteer. They do a lot of good things for God. Right? At least they think they're doing it for God. And maybe sometimes they even are. But when something doesn't go right in their life, They didn't get the thing, the blessing they were looking for. The job, the school, the girlfriend, the marriage, the kids, something. Right? That they was so necessary. You know what that is? That's them not getting their goat. That's what it is. And as soon as they don't get their goat, their party, to hang out with their friends and to have their fun and their idea of the good life, then there's rebellion. Then there's this. This voice comes out. There's this resentment, this simmer that starts to happen in the Christian person who's not getting their goat, not getting their job, not getting their happiness, not getting their success. In one way or another, then this voice comes out. Why? Because they're resentful. You're breaking the deal principle. I did all the good things. Therefore, you're supposed to put me in the star place. Right? Principle. And there's resentment. That's the way the deal works. And then, usually, one of a couple things happen. Typically, then, they stay in the church, and then they say they're burnt out. I'm burnt out, and that's why they don't do anything. Then they usually blame other people in the church for not being good Christians. Oftentimes they blame the leaders, pastors, elders. And then they start looking at everybody else's hypocrisy and so that they can feel that I'm not really doing anything for Jesus, but I'm not really any worse than them because, look, they're hypocrites and I, I don't, you know, this resentment. 
And then, or they just put it, keep it on a low side. They do all their manageable religion, but deep down they stay far from God. They're simmering with resentment, coldness, distance. God is far from me. I'm spiritually dry. I'm burned out. Why don't you just stand up and say, I'm trying to do the minute manageable religion. Or some of them will just chuck church or only go to church a few times a year. Once a month. Once, twice a month. Five times a year. And then in the meantime, they'll go try to seek their goat and their party on their own. And then every now and then come back to do very, very minimal manageable religion because God broke the deal. Phariseeism. I know it's hard to hear all this stuff. It's hard. How do you get out? What's the pathway out of it? And if you come to this church for a while, you know the pathway is the gospel. (laughs) To hear a good news. All this stuff I've been saying to you, part one and part two, I've been telling you the bad news of how you suck, how I suck, how we suck. That is really, it's really crappy news, isn't it? If you can recognize this in yourself, it's really terrible, isn't it? But you need to hear good news. And let me tell you what that good news, and let me tell you a little personal, reveal to you a little personal story about myself, just how I wrestled with it. Because I want to let you know I'm not immune to this. Pastors are not immune to this. The teacher is afraid of the principal too. The teacher would rather avoid the principal. But here's the good news. Everybody who's operating this way is trying to deal with manageable religion. You're trying to do some kind of righteousness that you can do. Manageable righteousness. Doable righteousness can doable goodness inside of you. But you know what's the goodness that's not inside of you? The heart to be a real son and a real daughter. And go to your father. And believe and know that he loves you. He really is a father to you. That, that's, not, that's the part that's not in you. And the pathway to this is, you know, there is a son. There should be, this should, the reason there's only two sons and they're both fools is because there's actually a third son that the story doesn't really point to. And guess what? He's a fool too. Right? There is, there's the younger son and there's an older son and then there is the oldest son who went and chased down these types of sons. And he literally said, let me rip myself apart and let me put my heart in you. So you won't look at God as the principal and you'll see this crazy, foolish father who sends a crazy, foolish son to be ripped apart on the cross so that out of his death would come form streams of living water. The whole Spirit of God who will put the spirit of the Son in your heart and change you from the inside out. That's what the gospel teaches you. And you come into this church, and I know I'm going to drop that quarter on you as often as it takes before it comes to, goes down. Huh? Let me just share with you a personal story of mine. <laughs> I said earlier in the message, some do this Pharisaical thing, and then they become a professional Pharisee, and then tell everybody else to run the manageable religion race. Some of the pastors give everybody a very manageable religion, keep it low, and then tell them, God is, God will bless you. This is a really popular message, this fulfills the churches. Do this pieces of manageable religion, then God will give you the good life. Then there are some pastors that will offer you the maximal Pharisaical run. That was me. 
Right? They'll push their people hard because, hey, we got to get people, they got to, got to stop them from being these lazy, crappy, hypocritical type of Christians. So, in order to do that, we have to get everybody up to, to just get better about it and just get them to run and try to run their emotions. And, and that's the way I, I, I thought of it. I would tell myself, come on! And, and, and ask myself to run harder. Because, cause, cause that's what it means to be a Christian. I did that for many years. Um, and it's a funny thing how you can know the doctrine of the gospel inside out. Because I do. But the heart of sonship can be far. And for quite some time, that's the way it was for me. And I've shared this story in varying different kinds of ways. Especially, it it was interesting that the first time around when I was the pastor of this church, I felt like I was very much failing. And because I was very much failing... I was like, gosh, I don't, I don't want to deal with this. I hate the fact this makes me feel like I'm failing. And there was a chunk of time when I was doing my PhD when I didn't want to be a pastor anymore. But then I said, Lord, no, you made me a pastor. Okay, I, I, have, I know enough to, to follow you, right? But it was a wild thing for God to call me back to the Korean American church. I, I, I often thought I was going to be away from the immigrant church. Why? Because, in a sense, my life story, and this is the way for a lot of immigrants are, if you are an immigrant made good, you go into the mainstream schools, you do well in the mainstream schools, the principal in the mainstream school will tell you you're good. Then you go off to the big name mainstream schools, and then you go off to the mainstream success in the mainstream careers. Guess what? That's what it means to be a doctor. That's what it means to go off to the good schools, or to be an engineer, all these other kinds of things. Who wants to just work in a mom-and-pop store because that's the immigrant world's businesses? you got to go off to all the things that the whole world thinks is so great and have success there. Then you're having a good life. You know what? People do that as pastors too. I'm a, I'm a smart guy and I've studied hard and I know my theology and I know my doctrine and I'm a very capable guy and so what I should do is be in the so-called mainstream church and then get success that way because then, then I'll be good. That's how I often thought. Right? But I think one of the reasons why God brought me back to the Korean American church, to the immigrant setting again, is so that I could find out that I'm I'm this. So that when I come here, there'll be no, it won't be about success. It won't be about my goat. See, one of the reasons why God takes away your goat is so then you can have him. Because as long as you are pursuing your goat, you can just keep God as your principal and not as your father. So God put me back into a church where it can't have anything to do with me thinking, I'm going to have success, and then I'm going to be a good pastor, and then I'm going to, it's going to be about my goat, about my success. Instead, he'll say, this is worthy of me, and in here, you'll find out something far more than your success, which is just me. I'll be your father. And you know, in these last few years being the pastor here, I'm I'm learning a freedom that I've never really, I don't think I've ever really had before I came to this church, honestly, in these last four years. Because I'm learning how to be a son. I'm learning how to have daddy dates and want them. And learning that everything in the church is that, is a daddy date. And to enter the party, that thing. That's what I'm learning. Because it's not about all these other things. And just be so happy in it. You know what I am? To see God do his things, to be the father of really pharisaical and messed up people in our church is an incredible thing, including me. So, you know, there is hope. There's hope for very stuffed up elder brothers. 
go to the foolishness of the son who will tear his heart open and place his heart in you so you can be and go to dad. Let's pray. And then we'll have our time of meditation and response. Lord, Dad, how can we live in your house for many years and years and years and years? But we can't. Just like the older son, there's so many older sons in this church, in the midst of us. And we've been in the church for many years, sometimes doing maximal religion and sometimes doing very minimal management religion. All the while saying, I want the deal. (laughs) Where's my goat? Instead of going to dad, spending time going into his party, running into his foolishness, watching him blow his money and joining him. (laughs) Joining you, Father. So I pray, Lord, give us the heart of Jesus by your Spirit. Because Jesus was split apart. May your Spirit be spilled out of him and into us. Give us a heart of sonship. And stop seeing you as the principal. Pray now that all those who are hearing this message would respond to you. And you would help us be sons and daughters. As we now respond and draw, just move us. And as we talk this week, and we share what's... And we'd break the bread of real fellowship by allowing people to really see the dark, pharisaical, elder son in us. And you'd give us real repentance. Do that in our church. Do that in the EM and the KM, youth, children, throughout this whole church. Turn us into sons, real sons, not just elder sons, but sons like the true son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Should go ahead and take some time. And fill out your card. Yeah, so we're going to give you some time to fill out that big piece of paper and uh, grab a crayon.